the certifications are very good for to to establish yourself in the privacy community but the certifications plus the the knowledge of how to apply all that you've learned that's that's where i think it's the it's the game changer for privacy professional are you ready to know what you don't know about privacy pros then you're in the right place welcome to the privacy pros academy podcast by kzent privacy experts the podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a privacy pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. Hi everyone and welcome to the KZM Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at KZM Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation as well as any key developments. With me today as my co-host is KZN CEO, Jamal Ahmed. Jamal Ahmed is a Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZN Privacy Experts. He is a leading global privacy professional, world-class trainer and lead mentor at the Privacy Pros Academy. Welcome, Jamal. Hi, Jamila. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm looking really forward to uh, speaking to Jose. Yes, our guest today is Jose Bello. Jose is a legal professional and data protection officer specializing in data protection and privacy. Jose is currently head of data privacy at Valua.ai, and he has worked in privacy and data protection in various countries, including the UK, Luxembourg and Portugal, specializing in compliance and data protection officer roles in the financial and technology sectors. Jose is a former co-chair of the IAPP Lisboa, Portugal and Luxembourg chapter. And we're delighted to have you here today. Jose, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure to be speaking with both of you. Thank wow, you. Wow, that, that is a lot of credibility and authority there, Jose. It's <laughs> such an honor to have you. Thank you for making the time to speak with us. Thank you, Jamal, for the invitation. Really looking forward to our talk. We've known each other for a while, so it's going to be a pleasure talking to you. Definitely. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Jose. So uh, with our podcast, as everyone knows, we start off with an icebreaker question. And Jose, I know you've got an interest in AI. So to come up with this question, I actually asked my Amazon Alexa for an icebreaker question. And this is what she came up with. She said, the best icebreaker question is, what is your favorite emoji? <laughs> oh dear Alexa <laughs> Alexa you put me on the spot I don't actually like emojis <laughs> why don't you like emojis Jose I don't know I never use them to be completely honest I don't know why maybe I'm too old <laughs> I don't know it just didn't happen smiley face I think the two dots and the parentheses is the, is the most I'll go so Alexa sorry I'm not a millennial <laughs> uh, <laughs> the good icebreaker question. It really set the tone as to how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So what I'm going to do, whenever I interact with you in the community, Jose, I'm going to start using loads of emojis now. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. My favorite one is the eye rolling emoji. I feel like I've been using that a lot this year during well, lockdown. <laughs> after that question, that's the one I, I would use to, for Alexa. <laughs> 
Luckily, I've got the microphone button switched off on her, otherwise she'd be listening in. Uh, but she's not at the moment. <laughs> That's great privacy by default there, Jamila. Yeah, there we go. I, I learned that from you, Jamal. I didn't know that she could do that. She could be turned off, but there we go. Uh, so our first question for you, Jose, is what first sparked your interest in data privacy? I was um, was working as a lawyer, mostly intellectual property. And there were two sides of, of the coin back then, talking around 2000, 2014 or something. So I really wanted to understand the U.S. perspective on intellectual property. So I signed up for a course at uh, the University of California at Berkeley, and it was in U.S. intellectual property and privacy. I was there for the intellectual property. I left with privacy. Most of the teachers there, and that's the power of a great university and of great education is that they can explain things in a way that really makes sense to you and can open up a whole new field of, of study, of interest to a student that goes there searching for one thing and leaving with another. Uh, they were talking about how Facebook, Google, all these companies that they were counseling were treating data and were processing data. And I was there thinking, is this how it's done in Europe? I didn't know the answer to the question. So that sparked my interest in how data was being processed by these companies in, in Europe. Quickly found out what they were doing wasn't, <laughs> wasn't exactly how the Europeans see data protection. And then the GDPR came along. And then it was just a course at the university, being lucky to be part of the GDPR journey from the beginning. And then just understanding how data is everywhere. So I wasn't as aware as I am today, of course, of how important data is and how data becomes so universal and so prevalent in everyone's life. From there, I think I started my career in privacy from uh, an accident, mm -hmm. but it really made sense to me. Really, really made sense to me. I thought this is something that we're going to deal with for a long time. And I think I found my calling. Great. Sure. When you first came across the GDPR, what was your initial thoughts? I thought, how did 27 countries agree to this? <laughs> it's because with 95.46, it wasn't easy. Well, every single piece of legislation from each country was very different. So that was one of the main reasons for the GDPR to come along, just to try and put European values on privacy in one regulation, because it was not only tough for businesses to deal with 27 countries, and their 27 data protection laws. But also what I thought, if those laws were so different and, and privacy is such a cultural thing, it's very difficult for regulation to be able to compress 27 different concepts of privacy. The concept of privacy is something that I deeply care about. The cultural concept is something I deeply care about because privacy isn't the same for all the countries in the world. So for 27 countries to come into an agreement on what privacy and data protection means was something that was that dumbfounded me. Well, I was really happy to see that they came to that agreement. To be completely honest, I don't really think that they understand how deep the GDPR would go. I don't think us privacy professionals understood, but now that we understand it, it seems like a small miracle that uh, the GDPR happens when it happens. I remember reading about the GDPR and the introduction and some of the propose, proposals around 2015, 2016, and I was just like, no way is this going to happen. No mm -hmm. way a big corporation is going to let this happen. They're just going to persuade or pay somebody off, and this is never going to see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And then in 2016, when it was passed, I was like, what? 
Exactly. And in 2018, when it was actually coming for us, I was just like, wow, it was, it was crazy time, wasn't it? A no vacation time for us privacy professionals. So I call my no vacation time. Because what we were expecting was for something like the GDPR not to pass, to be uh, subject to more and more amendments, like we're seeing with the e-privacy regulation. I was expecting more of an e-privacy regulation process than the one that happened with the GDPR for it to go year by after year, after presidency, yes. after presidency, uh, and not coming to an agreement because this is sensitive for the countries that host uh, big technological companies or that are trying to develop their own startup companies and trying to develop their startup environment. And they could look at it as a way to hinder that progress. So for this to happen in 2016 was a special time, was a special time. And then for it to get into force in 2018 and seeing it in action was also special because it really changed the way that companies looked at data. I didn't expect what happened next, which was the influence that the GDPR had around the world. Brazil followed suit with the LGPD. India is now publishing its new data protection law. Even the US has started to put out data protection laws. So the impact of the GDPR was much larger than what I think everyone expected. Absolutely. Continents like Africa, we've got the NDPR in Nigeria, and there's so many different pieces of legislation in draft stages all over the world. And I believe US is now talking about federal uh, data privacy. Yeah. So interesting times for privacy all over the world. Jose, you spent three years as a co-chair of the International Association of Privacy Professionals in mm -hmm. Portugal, Luxembourg. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and the IAPP for anyone who might not be familiar with who they are? I'm heavily involved in, in the IAPP and it started with going to a study academy like yours where I would study with other people around me. This was back in pre-COVID days. Yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, I could have done it by myself, but the networking that happened through the um, studying process was something that I, I hold dear to my heart. Many of my friends in privacy came from that group of uh, privacy professionals that went to study, went to learn the CIPP and the CIPM. This was the GDPR bundle. I did it in Belgium in, in an IAPP sponsored training, which was uh, interesting because I got to meet Trevor and um, Paul, and I was hooked on the IPP. I understood how they valued education and how the, the IPP really values the certifications and how hard it is to pass the certifications. That was probably one of the hardest exams I've ever done in my life. Wow. Uh, and coming from law, that's not easy to say. <laughs> so yeah, not only the networking is important, but also the explanations for that the mentor and the person delivering the course gave us uh, the practical experience. That was paramount for to pass the CIPP and the CIPM. Because uh, when you're starting, you don't really understand all the concepts in practice. You know the theory, but in, back in 2016. So most of the concepts were not as clear, but the same happens today. The, the landscape is evolving all the time. Cases are coming out from the CGU. New guidelines are coming out from the DPA. So I don't think that studying this all by yourself is a very good idea. <laughs> it's uh, much better to have someone that knows, uh, like yourself, that knows privacy in and out and can explain what is happening at the moment, the zeitgeist of, uh, of privacy at the moment. Otherwise, it's going to, to be very difficult to pass a very tough exam. CIPP is tough. So, so is that what you'd advise people that wanting to go into data privacy and wanting to take the CIPI exam? Would you advise them to go through the Privacy Pros Academy or uh, rather than just studying for the exam by themselves with a book? 
Yes, because the exam has its own uh, tricks. <laughs> and it's almost like you, you have to understand the way that the, the questions are, are posed. You have to understand what they mean. You only learn by someone that has already done the exam. You can only learn the theories there. The concepts are there. You can study them by yourself. But uh, how they all intertwine, that's a different matter. How the GDPR intertwines, how one sector, one section connects with the other. You can only get that through a seasoned professional. So yeah, that's something that I always recommend people that ask me, look, uh, taking the CIPPE, what should I do? Go study with someone that knows. That is an accredited professional. That's the, the best way to go around it because it's not an easy exam to pass. I have, how many times have I said it? Three times already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was a tough one, huh, Jamal? That was one tough exam. One very tough exam. The, the, the way I describe it, Jose, it's a humbling experience. Yeah, <laughs> very humbling. I've talked to, to partners in law firms that failed the exam on the first try. It's not that they don't know. They know. It's just the way that everything is connected. That you can only get through, through education with professionals that know how to deliver it. Absolutely. And I think one of the things a lot of um, individuals struggling with is, yes, sometimes they've actually picked up the book. They've managed to teach themselves how to pass the exam. But the problem is the reason everyone sits the exam is not to get a certificate. It's to increase your prospects of a career, increase your prospects of a financially rewarding, meaningful, challenging career. And one of the things they struggle is with the confidence in the theory, like past the exam, they've got the CP, but they don't actually know what that means in practice. They have no confidence when they're speaking to hiring managers. They can't convey that confidence and they can't um, get someone else to believe in the fact that they actually have this benchmark of knowledge. And the only time that comes is when we have students and we put them through the actual official IAPP training and give them the masterclasses. The confidence that these guys have compared to people who've just learned how to pass the exam is the difference between getting hired and not getting anywhere at all. It really does pay off. The CIPP certifies that you understand the GDPR and its complexities. The CIPM certifies that you understand what a privacy program is, how to do compliance. A very different matter is to join both to practical experience and how you can relate those two certifications into doing what you need to do in a compliance job. It's not an easy thing to do. You were talking about the masterclass. I think they're very important because that's where you connect the theory that you've learned with the CIPP and the CIPM towards the practice, the experience that you're going to need going into a company and doing compliance or becoming a DPO. The certifications are very good to establish yourself in the privacy community, but the certifications plus the, the knowledge of how to apply all that you've learned, that's where I think it's the, it's the game changer for privacy professionals. Absolutely. So Jose, what would you say has been the proudest moment of your career so far? Founding the, the Luxembourg chapter. <laughs> that was a special moment for me. I went to Luxembourg and as usual, I, I, I go and search for the IPP Knowledge Net chapter there. When I arrived in Luxembourg, that was the first thing I did. To my surprise, there was none. I emailed the IPP. I said, look, <laughs> we need a chapter over here. <laughs> and, they, and, and they just said, well, why don't you start it? And I said, fine, I will. And it was a very interesting experience to start the chapter. Luxembourg is a, a hub of uh, technology, finance and startups, especially fintech startups, has uh, major players like Amazon and PayPal there. So the chapter made sense to the IAPP, made sense gladly to be established as soon as possible. And it was a very interesting experience because I understood I had been co-chair in Portugal, but to start a chapter from scratch, that's something that was a very interesting experience because it took us one year just to do all the networking, 
all the presentations of what AIPP stands for, how policy neutral it is. And, uh, and we talked to regulators, we talked to law firms, we talked to banks, and everyone became very interested with the IBP. And I'm very happy to see the, the chapter move on without me now, as I finished my tenure as co-chair, and I'm very glad to see it prosper. So yeah, I'm proud of that one. Yeah, that's a great legacy you've created and leaving behind as well, Jose. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It wasn't just my legacy, it was also my, my co-chair's legacy, Johan and, and Philip. They, they were there. I just arrived in Luxembourg. I knew how chapters worked because of Portugal, but they were the ones that would connect the chapter with the privacy community because they've been there. They were privacy professionals before. They still are, of course. They were the ones that connected all the dots. So it was a very interesting idea with me connecting with the IPP and them with uh, the local community. So, and it's been working well and I'm very happy with it. Very happy. Um, were there any differences between the IAPP that you set up in Luxembourg to the one that you're part of in Portugal? Yes. Yes. So in Portugal, we didn't have that many CIPPs when I started as a co-chair. So the, the chapter had been started five years or six years before that. But with the GDPR, there was an explosion of CIPPs in Portugal. We caught up when I started my tenure as co-chair. I was lucky to see the chapter also explode. We had uh, almost 500, 600 in one KNET event. That was rare before. It wasn't unheard of, but it was rare. The interest in privacy grew a lot in Portugal during that time. Portugal was also shifting towards digitalization. We are a frontier country of Europe. So we're closer to, to America than to the other parts of, well, if you count Azores, I'm right. <laughs> so Azores are an island in the middle of the Atlantic. Privacy was starting to become a sector, in, an industry in Portugal. Luxembourg already had privacy established everywhere. Compliance was something that was, was very important uh, because of all the regulations that uh, not only the privacy regulations like the GDPR, but also the financial regulations on compliance, AML, KYC, etc. So it was more established than in Portugal, but it still was a lot of uh, networking that had to be done. Before we came, we had to do all the networking in Luxembourg because the IPP just started and we had to push out the name of the IPP and what it stands for. So we spoke a little bit about uh, GDPR and its inception and the EU now have proposed a new legal framework for AI. So what are your thoughts on that? First of all, I think the success of the AI regulation is dependent on the success of the GDPR. GDPR has its struggle, as we, we talked about, has been a very positive influence, not only in Europe, but also around the world. But it does have its struggles, its, its bottlenecks. Those bottlenecks need to be addressed uh, quickly. And I think that uh, EDP and, and the DPAs are, are aware of those bottlenecks and are trying to solve them. Because from what we understand, AI regulation is going to be done by, by the DPAs. So if they cannot enforce properly the GDPR, it's going to be very difficult for them to enforce the GDPR plus the AI regulation. So I think that we have we still have time until the AI regulation is approved. The powers that the, the DPAs have all over Europe so that when the AI regulation is passed and enforced, that the DPAs can then start working with the GDPR and the AI regulation. I do think that there are many contact points between both of them as should be because it's data processing. It's just a different kind of data processing. But I do think that it warrants a, a separate regulation. There's been a lot of talk about other types of technologies that may need a separate regulation, importantly blockchain. But I do think that Europe has taken a very brave step forward in regulating AI so early because there's a lot of that we don't know about AI. It's the beginning of a journey that has been becoming more and more solid all over Europe. 
And I do think that AI is the future. And I'm very happy that Europe has made this benchmark on regulating AI with European values, which I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the GDPR came in and it really transformed how personal data is viewed, not just in Europe, but across the world. And I think picking up the artificial intelligence is the next big thing. And finally, uh, get an early grip and a handle on that and regulate it. I think it's uh, definitely the way forward. I'm actually very impressed that they managed to bring these guidelines in or have this at this stage so early and so quickly, given how long it took data privacy to come into a unified regulation where all 27 member countries are happy with it. Have you seen any gaps or any concerns that you might have with the AI proposals? The most important one, I think, would be the ones that impact data subjects the most. We can talk about facial recognition, for instance. It's a hot topic. It's a topic that that impacts the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection. It's used towards law enforcement, for instance, is something that uh, needs to be addressed. It is addressed in the regulation. I don't know if it's going to through well during the negotiation process. Because a lot of countries do rely on already on facial recognition and it's widespread all over Europe. There's this balance that needs to be attained, achieved uh, between security and uh, our privacy. That trade-off is a very difficult one. We are not living in, in easy times. I do think it's interesting that facial recognition has been rendered almost difficult to use with uh, all the masks that everyone's using. <laughs> so I don't know how they are going to go about it. This need for masks continues uh, throughout the years. I do think that facial recognition is something that needs to be addressed. It's something that concerns me because we do push for uh, privacy and data protection all over Europe, but we also know that there is processing that is almost in a black box that we don't know mm -hmm. anything about. I remember the, the city of Cannes was introduced a municipal CCTV system where they would detect, the first step was to detect if you had a mask or not. That was the, the way that they set it up. The scale of it was interesting because they were going checking your emotions. Why the city of Cannes wants to know how you feel is interesting. If you're feeling sad and they send you chocolates, fine by me. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that either, but we always think of the nefarious aspect of uh, checking your emotions. And it's human emotions. So it's privacy. Yes, it's privacy. It's data protection. Yes, it's data protection. But it's also something that it's not something that we're used to, you know, like analyzing your emotions. What happens if you don't get it right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah you know, like everyone's different. So uh, the early stages in facial recognition. But I do think that facial recognition is something that... Uh, it's, it's addressed in the regulation. They are thinking of banning it. I don't think that that's going to go through in the end because a lot of countries have already established a lot of uh, CCTVs with uh, AI systems uh, collecting emotions. Yes. When I last looked at it, I think what they've proposed now is they're going to ban the real-time using of it. So what that means is you could probably rewind 30 seconds and start using it, but it's just that live real-time using they're trying to ban against. What's interesting for me, Jose, is UK, we're no longer part of the European Union. But as you say, the idea is that the supervisory authorities are going to be enforcing this. And if the UK does adopt similar regulations or buy into this, what that means for the adequacy decision and 
how that is going to interplay with everything else. Uh, I think it's going to be very interesting times uh, for privacy professionals working between New London or UK and Europe going forward. Uh, we respect your right to be forgotten from the EU, <laughs> <laughs> but we miss you. <laughs> we actually miss you. You cannot uh, have a more interesting time to be in privacy. The effects of, of data uh, in the global economy have are are so important right now that most economic deals already have data protection clauses in place uh, between countries and advocacy decisions have become more and more important. We see the GDPR and the requirements that the GDPR places. We, you see other countries trying to mimic, in quote, uh, the GDPR because of advocacy decision. So that is a way for businesses to come to Europe and to offer their services in Europe. The GDPR became almost a gateway for companies to be able to provide services to Europeans. That's how important economically the GDPR is. Then you see the questions around Schrems 2, uh, the questions around Brexit. You see how 5G is going to come along, how AI is going to come along, how IoT is going to come along. Uh, I remember Gartner saying that I think in, by 2025, 70% of all personal data will be collected through IoT which is going to be very interesting to see this shift between human-provided personal data, declared data, observed data, declared data by IoT, <laughs> which is going to be a new concept where most of the data that you provide is being provided by machines that you own in your house. And it's 70%. It's not a small number. And Gartner usually doesn't get these things wrong. Even if it's not 70%, it's going to be a very high number. As technology develops, it's going to be very interesting to see how our job also changes because we have to evolve with the times. To be honest, this, this is a, a never-ending journey. Probably one of the most exciting times to be in, in, in a sector. Our job is, is pretty interesting every single day. Absolutely. Absolutely. I found it interesting what you were saying about AI being able to read your emotions because I always get told off for looking like I'm mad at everyone as my kind of resting face. So if that chocolate thing comes through that they're going to think that you're sad and send you chocolate, I'll be in luck. I'll be getting it every day. The technology won't be able to see that that's just my normal face. Choc yeah, well, they might be worried you're about to go and uh, harm someone, Jamila. Well, yeah. Just, or people that are happy with a frown every day, just expecting <laughs> chocolates. <laughs> that would be a nice use of technology, you know? Going with emotions probably wouldn't be privacy friendly and data protection friendly as well, but uh, at least you get chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least it's not that negative charge of uh, the facial recognition, trying to figure out if you're going to commit a crime or something like that. It's a more positive. Why aren't people happy? What can we do to make their lives better? If they go... With that approach, maybe our questions around well the, the, the technology would not be so, so adamant, but uh, usually see is that technology is being used more and more towards more nefarious goals. So why not use it to improve the happiness of the people that are not happy? Why not? Definitely. Definitely. Our last question, we want to give you a chance to ask Jamal a question as we've been asking you questions all this time. How do you see AI regulation in the UK? <laughs> do you think it's going to happen? How do you see the intertwine with the, the Data Protection Act and the GDPR? How, how is it going to work out? This, the second question is the real one. <laughs> I think it really depends on who's in government at the time. If you look at the current government, they're very anti-regulation when it comes to being able to do things with uh, people's personal data. I mean, there was even suggestions that they're going to get rid of the GDPR so we can do whatever we like. And we're going to have our own adequacy decisions with uh, the US so we can do lots of trade with them. 
Now, when it comes to artificial intelligence, one of the things that we have to think about is when you take a city like London, I think we have the highest concentration of CCTV cameras to the population anywhere in the world. If you think about that, that means that every time you step out your house, it's likely that you're going to be picked up by a camera and you can go about your day, go shopping, go and see your friends. But that facial recognition, the artificial intelligence behind that can actually track what you're doing all of the time, who you're doing it with, who you're spending time with, how long you're spending time there, where you're going, places of worship you're attending, and where you're going for your medical treatments. It could collect a lot of special category and highly sensitive information. The fact that we're no longer part of the European Union, I see no appetite from the current government to adopt any of these things. And I see them actually thinking there's lots of benefits in being able to surveil people in that way, in the matters of national interest or whatever uh, they want to call it. I'm actually quite scared, to be honest. I'm quite concerned about how this could be used to infringe people's basic human rights. And it's not just about infringing on people's human rights. When you know that you're being watched all the time, it's going to be very interesting to see how people change and conform and uh, how that affects the human psyche and what that means for future generations growing up. Interesting. It's, it's, it's an exciting time, but it's also a very um, <laughs> worrying time for me. Will we be able to do the difference, the privacy professionals? Do, do you think that privacy professionals are paramount in informing the public of all the dangers that could lie ahead. In my experience, I come across two types of privacy professionals. There's ones that are actually passionate about privacy and what it is that we're doing and really want to think forward and make an impact in the world. And there's those privacy professionals that are just doing it for the money. So it depends which one of those you're talking about. The ones that are in it for the money, well, they'll make money, whatever happens, as long as someone's paying them to dot their I's and cross the T's and do whatever they need to do. Whereas the rest of us, people like me and you, Jose, I think we have to be instrumental in shaping what this looks like. We have to be really vocal about making sure that we're standing up for people's rights, especially the most vulnerable in our societies and those that who might not even be aware of all of the things that's possible with data privacy. And what's really interesting for me is a few years ago, even when the GDPR first came into force, we would talk about data privacy, the general public, or when we're training employees in organizations, and they wouldn't be so aware of what privacy is and why it's such a big deal. Just like, oh, it's a regulation. What does that mean to me? And it's only when you start having those conversations with them, they actually realize, wow, this is quite a big deal. But now... I get people asking me, do they need to leave WhatsApp because of their privacy? So how aware people are, especially in the UK, about when it comes to their privacy now, it's a completely different space to where it was only a few years ago. So, so you've seen a major change on the awareness of UK citizens regarding the data protect their own data. Do you see them protect their own data more? So I think I've seen people go on two sides of the spectrum. <laughs> so whereas before people used to be more in the middle, now they're either one side where they don't actually care, they feel like they're helpless, they're collecting all this data all the time and they just like give in and give up. Or the other ones that actually, they, you know, say, hang on a minute, I'm going to start wearing a mask every day. I'm not going to use my smart devices. I'm not going to take them with me when I go so they don't monitor my movements using Google Maps or anything. And so you've got people coming to either side of the spectrum now and less people in the middle. Less people in the middle. That's what I think also. Let's hope that they all move to the very informed side. And hopefully our work will pay off in getting more and more information to the public. That's something that I really care about. That's probably one of the reasons that I think that the IPP and academies like yours are so important, not only educating the privacy professionals, but also helping to educate the people that those privacy professionals will then reach.
That's why I think that very solid academic and uh, mm. educational background is important for privacy professionals because they are thought leaders in such a complex space. More power to you and to the academy for doing a very good job on that. And thank, thank you for thank that. You. Thank you, Jose. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Now, before I let you go, I know Jamila said it was the last question, but I'm going to sneak in one more. <laughs> I want to hear your top tips for aspiring privacy pros. Do the IPP certifications. That's number yeah. one, by studying through courses and not by yourself. Not only because of the way that it is, it's explained in the academies and in the training sessions, but also the networking that you do. Studying with other people is, is very important because everyone comes from very different backgrounds and industries and you learn a lot faster about how data is being processed in other sectors and industries through the talks that you have with your study partners. Second, be aware of... Uh, almost everything that comes out in privacy. There's a lot to read every single day. LinkedIn is a great to, to connect with uh, privacy professionals. You get a lot of information through those uh, networking, through those networking links that you have on LinkedIn. I learn almost every single day uh, something new about how certain DPA uh, decided something that is probably different from some from the DPA of Bulgaria or the DPA from Portugal or from Luxembourg. So I would say LinkedIn and connecting with privacy professionals in LinkedIn. Going KNET events from the IPP, that's something that is really, really important. They usually try to, to bring something that is up to date and the topic that is relevant to privacy professionals in that moment. And lastly, study a lot. <laughs> I don't think there's a, there's any other way to say it because it's going to be easy because the passion will come with the process. Studying doesn't be a chore uh, and it becomes something that comes natural to you. Be aware of all the things that are related to privacy and are around privacy, like AI, uh, machine learning, it's automated cars, IoT, 5G, etc. There's lots of ground to cover. To study, you can miss out on something that can be important to your work. Okay, thank you very much. There you go. Jose's top tips. Number one is... <laughs> Make sure that you secure and attain the IAPP certifications and don't just learn how to pass an exam, don't study by yourself. Go and invest in training, spend some time with other people as part of that study group and also someone who's actually gone there, done and can share all the practical experience yes. with you and apply this in practice. Because when you're studying by yourself, you only have yourself to ask and obviously you don't know the answer and you don't know how it applies and it's quite dangerous sometimes and you can have some great misconceptions which will lead you to wasting time and money and paying lots of recertification fees. Number two on Jose's top tips on how to be a great privacy professional is network, network, network. Get yes. yourself on LinkedIn, speak to loads of people. And uh, number three is join the IAPP Knowledge Net um, chapters. Make sure you are networking. There's so much value to get from those Knowledge Net chapters. And Jose knows because he's been the co-chair of not just the Portugal, but also in Luxembourg as well. So he's the best person to explain that to you. And of course, he's been a member of the IAPP for a long time now. And he can really tell you that the benefits that it delivers. And just don't take Jose's words for it. There's, I think, what, 70,000 people across yeah. 156 countries all over the world now. So it's definitely a, a great place to be a part of. And of course, if you come and take any of the trainings with us, um, you automatically get one year's membership to the IAPP. And finally, study hard, continuous studying. Don't see it as a chore. You need to stay up to date to be the best version or to be the best privacy pro you possibly can, you need to be aware of how things are moving. And in this sector, things are always shifting. Yes. And therefore, we need to be on top of that. And where we need to upscale, we should invest in making sure that we're spending that time um, really getting to know what we need to know to help all of those organizations and individuals. Could I said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> That's exactly it. Thank you for joining us today, Jose. It's been a pleasure speaking with it's you. Thank you, Jamila.
Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, both of you, for the, for a very, very, very good conversation. And uh, it also made, made me go back to my early days in privacy and how, how this all started. I'm nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> Those were, were amazing times. So thank you so much for taking me back. Thank you. Thank you, it, Jamal. It's been a pleasure, Jose. I look forward to catching up with you in the community. We will, definitely. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode... Be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class Privacy Pro. Please leave us a four or five star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.